Hello, everyone. I'm Comron. And I'm Billy. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of your two favorite professional digressors. Today, we will be discussing Book 3, Chapter 12 of Dead House Gates, a novel in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. This is Part 3 of our coverage of this chapter. This podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the books set in the Malazan universe. It's not a book review, and it's most definitely not intended to be a replacement to reading the books. Know that Comron and I know that this series is the best fantasy story ever written, and we're approaching this from a purely fanboy point of view, and there will be no critique. Just marveling at this series of books. <laughs> Gets me every time. <laughs> we will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective book. And a quick warning, today's episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and is not recommended for children. Is it sorcerous or non-sorcerous? I, I think it's a little... It is malicious. <laughs> There's a number of different categories of violence today. There's mundane, sorceress, and uh, mundane by meaning non-supernatural. <laughs> Just good old okay. plain viciousness, you know. <laughs> okay, do we need to come up with some categories here? We might. Okay. I'll have to look into this. <laughs> we'll have to add it to the ever-expanding yet never-present horse frogopedia. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Until we can afford having a, a webmaster. <laughs> Our show is listener supported. If you would like to support us, we'd really appreciate it. You can do so by visiting our Patreon link on our website at horsefrogproductions.com. Currently, we are posting ad-free episodes on Patreon weekly. Also, we would really like to hear from you, so send any feedback or comments to contact at horsefrogproductions.com. All right, Chapter 12, Part 3. We begin this section with Kalam and company in the Imperial Warren. Ash hung motionless in their wake for as far as Kalam could see. Their trail had the appearance of being as straight as a spear shaft. His frown deepened. Minala said, we are lost. Kenna muttered, better than dead, offering Kalam at least that much sympathy. Kalam felt Minala's hard gray eyes on him. She said, get us out of this hood-cursed warren, corporal. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We don't know where we are. Get us out, Kalam thought. I visualized Aaron. I picked the place, an unobtrusive niche at the end of the final twist of No Help Alley, in the heart of Dregs, that Malazan expatriate hobble close to the riverfront, right down to the cobbles underfoot. So why can't we get there? What's blocking us? Kalam said, not yet. Even by Warren, Aaron is a long journey. He thought, that makes sense, doesn't it? So why all this unease? Minala continued. Something's wrong. I can see it in your face. We should have arrived by now. The taste of ash, its smell, its feel, had become a part of him, and he knew it was the same for the others. Kalam had suspicions of what that ash had once been. The heap of bones they had stumbled onto when arriving had not proved unique. Yet he found himself instinctively shying from acknowledging those suspicions. The possibility was too ghastly, too overwhelming to contemplate. I feel like we need a Starship Troopers, would you like to know more, sound like for these types of statements. <laughs> Followed by someone screaming for the medics. <laughs> Medic! <laughs> we could do both of those in separate yes. scenarios. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of medic needed in this story. <laughs> We'd probably overuse that one. Yeah, actually, we would. To mention it. Yeah, and Mr. Erickson dangling those little worms of information. He hangs them out there on a hook for us, and it makes us want to mm -hmm. read more. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. So, <laughs> so beautifully and intricately done. He does it so gorgeously. Keneb grunted, then sighed. Well, Corporal, shall we continue on? Kalam glanced at Keneb, 
The fever from his head wound was gone, though a barely perceptible slowness to his movements and expressions indicated his healing was not complete. Kalam knew he could not count on Keneb in a fight, and with the apparent loss of Apt, he felt his back exposed. Minala's inability to trust him diminished the reliance he placed in her. She would do what was necessary to protect her sister and the children, that and nothing more. He thought, better were I alone. Kalam nudged the stallion forward. After a moment, the others followed. The Imperial Warren was a realm in perpetual dusk, its faint light sourceless, a place without shadows. They measured the passage of time by the cyclical demands imposed by their bodies, the need to eat and drink, the need to sleep. Yet when gnawing hunger and thirst grew constant and unappeased, when exhaustion pulled at every step, the notion of time sank into meaninglessness. Indeed, it revealed itself as something born of faith, not fact. This reminds me of the bunker experiment they performed in the 60s, and it was designed to pinpoint the workings of our biological clock by observing volunteers living in a sealed bunker for a number of weeks. The facility was fitted with all the comforts of modern life, but without sunlight, so there was no way to determine what time it was. And they found that most people actually run on a 25-hour clock but there was an extreme case of one individual who ran on a 50-hour clock, and that subject had problems coming to terms with the fact that two weeks' worth of life just weren't there anymore because they interpreted it as a different passage of time because to them, you know, one day was 50 hours instead of 20. You know, it's like basically yeah. half of it went away to them. and uh, Wow. It simply vanished for them, the two weeks. That's interesting. I hadn't heard about that. That's wild. I like the idea that, that, that most of us run on a 25-hour clock. That's interesting. Kalam thought of a quote, time makes of us believers, timelessness makes of us unbelievers. Another saying of the fool, another sly quote voiced by the sages of my homeland, used most often when dismissing precedent, a derisive scoff at the lessons of history. The central assertion of sages was to believe nothing. More, that assertion was a central tenet of those who would become assassins. Another quote came to Kalam. Assassination proves the lie of constancy. Even as the upraised dagger is itself a constant, your freedom to choose who, to choose when, is the constant's darker lie. An assassin is chaos unleashed, students. But remember, the upraised dagger can quench firestorms as easily as light them. And there, plainly carved in Kalam's thoughts, stretched the thin, straight track that would lead him to Lassine. Every justification he needed rode unerring within that fissure. He thought, yet while the track cuts through Aaron, it seems all unknowing something's nudged me from it, left me wandering this plain of ash. Manella caught up to him and said, I see clouds ahead. Ridges of low-hanging dust crisscrossed the area before them. Kalam's eyes narrowed as he muttered, as good as footprints in mud. Manella asked, what? Kalam said, look behind us. We leave the selfsame trail. We've company in the Imperial Warren. She said, and any company's unwelcome. Kalam responded, aye. Arriving at the first of the ragged ruts only deepened Kalam's unease. He thought, more than one. Bestial. No servants sworn to the Empress left these. Manala pointed and said, look. Thirty paces ahead was what appeared to be a sinkhole or dark stain on the ground. Suspended ash rimmed the pit in a motionless, semi-translucent curtain. Behind them, Keneb growled, Is it just me, or is there a new smell to this hood-rotted air? Minala said, Like wood spice. Spice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you know what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> it's got that going on, doesn't it? All right. You okay, so we're it. starting the Dune counter already. <laughs> <laughs> Hackles rising, Kalam freed his crossbow from its binding on the saddle, cranked the claw back until it locked, then slid a quarrel into the slot. He felt Manala's eyes on him throughout and was not surprised when she spoke. She said, that particular smells one you're familiar with, isn't it? And not from riffling some merchant's bolt chest either. What should we be on the lookout for, Corporal? Kalam kicked his horse into a walk and said, anything. The pit was at least a hundred paces across, the edges heaped in places. Burned bone jutted from those mounds. Kalam's stallion stopped a few yards from the edge. Kalam lifted one leg over the saddle horn, then slipped down. He told the others, best stay here, no telling how firm the sides are. Minala asked, then why approach at all? Kalam edged forward without answering. He came to within two paces of the rim, close enough to see what lay at the bottom of the pit, although at first it was the far side that held his attention. He thought, now I know what we're walking on and refusing to think on it didn't help at all. Hood's <laughs> breath. The ash formed compacted layers, revealing past variations in the temperature and ferocity of the fires that had incinerated this land and everything on it. The layers varied in thickness as well. One of the thickest was an arm's length in depth and looked solid with compacted, shattered bone. Immediately below it was a thinner, reddish layer of what looked like brick dust. Other layers revealed only charred bones, mottled with black patches rimmed in white. Those few that he could identify looked human in size, perhaps slightly longer of limb. The banded wall opposite him was at least six arm spans deep. He thought... We stride ancient death, the remains of millions. Fortunately, we didn't have to wait long to find out what this ash was comprised of, because that was quite suspenseful, thinking what could possibly have made all this up. The scale of this ritual would have been unimaginable in size. The power level yeah. to accomplish such a task would be enormous. Yeah, and you know what's crazy is that there's a ton of players in this series that probably approach these power levels, if not exceed them. Right. We just haven't seen too much of that actively yet. No, no. And the other thing that caught my eye is the smell. Not just the, do you think it's like bones he's thinking he knows that smell or is it auditorial? I think the smell that he is smelling is from the soul taken or divers that they oh, 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 saw oh, on the right. tracks. Okay, that's right. The spice. They talked about the wood spice smell yeah. before. So the, thank you. Thank you. So yeah. what is that red? Do you think that that red... Brick, brick dust interests me. What is the manner of this thick brick dust? Probably some building the people were in. Well, that's true. I didn't think about that. I was just kind of, we, we just know that Auditoral lays like that. Don't we? Yet? It, it does. They listed how it ran weird, but now, no, you're right. It wouldn't be a layer. That stuff ran through layers. It was like a vein, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It's more like a vein that, like, they said, like wax, like wax running through something. It's so weird. Such an mm -hmm. odd description of it in the mind there. Kalam's gaze slowly descended to the pit's floor. It was crowded with rusted, corroded mechanisms, all alike, though strewn about. Each was the size of a trader's wagon. Huge, spoked iron wheels were visible. Kalam studied them a long time. Then he returned to the others, uncocking the crossbow as he did so. Manala said, well? Kalam shrugged as he climbed into the saddle. He said, old ruins at the bottom. Odd ones. The only time I've seen anything like them was in Darujistan, within the temple that housed Ikarium's Circle of Seasons, which was said to measure the passage of time. This wasn't in Gardens of the Moon, at least Kalam visiting that, 
So mm-hmm. I assume that was during another trip to Darugistan when he was in the claw. Is this the same machine that's referred to that's in the Gardens of the Moon in Darugistan? Yes. But that, okay. I believe, was mentioned in a conversation between Rake and Baruch. Yes, well, I knew that. But we can also, it may not necessarily be while he's a claw, maybe while they were here in town, maybe they were taken in the sights. That's a possibility. They were doing stuff there between the scenes that we saw. So yeah. it could be that too. Yeah. Okay. Just as easily as what I suggested. Okay. And the implication is that the remains in the bottom of this pit are one of Icarium's contraptions. When you say things like the implication, you ever see Sonny? <laughs> Do you know the implication? I think we stopped watching after maybe two seasons. It gets hard to watch. It's so uncomfortable at times. Oh, yes. But that's the idea of the implication is, un- is extremely uncomfortable. The idea is that Dennis wants to get a boat so that when he takes dates on the water, well, you know, mm. things are always going to happen just because you know of the implication. Oh, okay. And it's like, and, and they're like, what? You're going to kill this woman? It's like, no, no, <laughs> no. No, I'm not going to kill this woman. It's just, no, you make it sound like you're going to kill this woman, Dennis. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, but you know, the implication, they keep, so there's a big, there's a whole bunch on the implication that's always very disturbing and also very sunny. So, so I should not be using the word implication. <laughs> the implication. <laughs> uh, the implication. Gotcha. Okay. You may trigger a sunny warning, which is not bad. It's, it makes me laugh. So. Keneb grunted. Kalam glanced at him and he asked, something, Captain? Keneb said, a rumor, nothing more, months old. Kalam asked, what rumor? Keneb said, oh, that Ikarium was seen. What do you know of the Deck of Dragons, Corporal? Kalam said, enough to stay away from it. Keneb nodded and continued. We had a seer pass through around that time. Some of my squads chipped in for a reading, ended up getting their money back since the seer couldn't take the field past the first card. The seer wasn't surprised, I recall. Said that had been the case for weeks, and not just for him, but for every other reader as well. Kalam thought, Alas, that wasn't my luck the last time I saw a deck. And that would have been the reading in Ladro Keep by that merchant's wife. Right. The reading was the rope surrounded by king, herald, mason, spinner, knight, and queen of high house death. So I was thinking a little bit about who some of these characters might be. Right. I guess Fiddler could be mason. Yes. And um, who would the queen of High House. Would that be Absalar? But I thought she was associated with Shadow. She's Shadow, right? I was going to say, she's Shadow. She... Yeah. We have no further clarity on any of these. No answers. Kalam asked, which card? Keneb said, one of the unaligned, I think it was. Which are those? Kalam began listing them. Orb, Throne, Scepter, Obelisk. Keneb said, Obelisk, that's the one. The seer claimed it was Akarium's doing, that he'd been seen with his trail companion in Pan Potson. Manala asked, does any of this matter? Kalam thought, obelisk, past, present, future, time, and time has no allies. Kalam replied, probably not. They rode on, skirting the pit at a safe distance. More dust trails crossed their route, with only a few suggesting the passage of a human. Although it was hard to be certain, they seemed to be heading in the opposite direction to the one Kalam had chosen. He thought, if indeed we're traveling south, then the soul taken and divers are all traveling north. That might be reassuring, except that if there are more shapeshifters on the way, we'll run right into them. 
So no warrant is a safe haven from the soul taken in divers at this time. Yeah, not thanks to the mad, 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 mad world in the land of divers and soul taken right now. Or the, the rat are, race. Yes. The more yes. modern take on Thank it's you. a mad, yeah. mad, mad, you mad, funny? mad world. I don't, I don't even think rat race is enough to be called modern anymore. That's like 20 no. years old now, isn't it? You're right. Is it yeah, 90s? It probably closer to 25 years, if not 30 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. A thousand paces later, they came to a sunken road. It was six arm spans down. While dust filled the air above the cobbles, the steeply banked sides had not slumped. Kalam dismounted, tied a long, thin rope to his stallion's saddle horn, then, gripping the rope's other end, began making his way down. To his surprise, he did not sink into the bank. His boots crunched. The slope had been solidified somehow, nor was it too steep for the horses. Do you get the idea in this warn that because I'm assuming there's absolutely zero breeze except what is created by your passage that that stuff just hangs in the air unless it's been undisturbed for thousands of years and it just eventually settles yeah it seems to be that way doesn't it yeah it really does like it's always just hanging in the air i mean even when they're sleeping like they get no relief from this stuff it kind of makes you wonder if it doesn't settle at all yeah that's kind of what i'm getting the impression of did you ever see the, did you ever watch stranger things yeah. Well, course. you know that stuff hanging in the air. It's kind of like this. It's like in the. It's like in the depths down in uh -huh. in Tears of the Kingdom. It's like this always ever present, <laughs> just just bone ash hanging in the air always. Yeah. Yeah, I get that impression too. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good way to visualize it. The upside down. Yeah. It's a little bit less dark than the upside down. But it's almost yes. like the upside down. Well, it is. Anytime, it, it's kind of funny. As one of my favorite Christian teachers uses the upside down a lot in referencing the spiritual realm because people love that idea anyhow, and it's a, it's a conversation starter. I mean, it's kind of how we see the spiritual world, very much similar to this. I see. I I believe there's an upside down. A couple of them. When you say <laughs> the spiritual world, you mean like purgatory? Uh, I believe in I believe in heaven and hell. Okay. Um, and and then of course we have the we have the mortal realm, and I believe heaven and hell are separate. So I believe in you know two spiritual realms and one. Uh, but I believe that they kind of occupy the same kind of strata. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you'd put it. What I'm trying to understand is when you say you use it as a descriptor for the spiritual realm, it can be a conversation. Could people see this alternate world that exists on the other side of our own Earth in the upside down? It's like that's not. I mean, it's not dissimilar. From the idea of a heaven and a hell, where there, you know, these worlds are, exist on the opposite side of our life, it's more like conversation starters for us as Christians to try and lot, to talk to people about things. And this one teacher I like in particular, he passed on not too long ago, but Michael Heiser is a very fascinating man and had a very interesting outlook on the supernatural realm. It's a viewpoint I share. But the upside down is one that's very common because so many people love that show. It's very easy to to talk to people about things because <laughs> there is some spiritual stuff going on in Stranger Things. I'm trying to think. No, you got people being attacked by forces from another side. I got you. Like a mirror world of our own. It's not a dissimilar thought to us thinking of hell in a way, except hell to me is not a place where people have a lot of freedom. You may have freedom to move around, but it's not going to be anything to go to except to be where, they, where that is. So Constantine did a really good job yeah. with that, I think, because it, it's a similar type of thing with the demons coming through yeah. and possessing people. And then yeah. when he went into hell to see if Isabel's sister was there, it was kind of like what we're talking about. There was a bunch of stuff in the air, like burning ashes. Yeah. 
and it was a wasteland burned down. It's very common apocalyptic because you have, I, I don't know if you people understand this a lot, you know, the, the idea that we have of hell is always from the Bible and it only, and you only got two descriptions and it's descriptions that don't go together. It's flame and darkness. This is a man from the first century trying to describe something. And the, the only thing he's got is these images of destruction darkness somehow and fire and but other than that somebody from today might describe it completely different they'd seen the same thing because they would have more of a, they'd have a different vocabulary or different viewpoint to look at things from so i don't know but it's it's interesting yeah kalam glanced up at the others he said this can lead us in the direction we've been traveling along more or less i suggest we take it we'll make much better time minala said going nowhere faster <laughs> kalam grinned and I hadn't thought of how difficult it would be to walk through that ash. Yeah. It would be tiring after a while, just like walking through snow, I imagine. Yeah. Also, being unable to see rocks and other things to turn underfoot would be an additional complication. Yeah, you're right. I was thinking about like walking on a beach and the consistency, but the snow is more appropriate because you don't know what you're putting your foot down on as your foot sinks into the ash. You could be stepping on a skull or bones or whatever and twist your ankle pretty easy. When everyone had led their mounts down, Keneb said, why not camp here for a while? We're not visible and the air's a bit cleaner. Selv added, and cooler. She held her arms around her all too quiet children. If these boys are anything like mine, that would be an anomaly. If I look away for two seconds, someone is wrestling someone else. And <laughs> I have to think that if they were in this situation, they'd probably still be doing that kind of stuff. You think after all they've gone through, being on the run for your life, you know, keeping themselves focused on being quiet, they wouldn't have learned that? I think so. <laughs> they can't help themselves, they can't help dude. It. It's just compulsion. <laughs> I get, he's not You will pay. You will, <laughs> you will pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> Kalam said, all right. The bladders of water for the horses were getting ominously light. He thought, we're running out of time. As he unsaddled, fed, and watered the horses, Minala and Kenev laid out the bedrolls, then assembled the meager supplies that would make up their own meal. The preparations were conducted in silence. As they ate, Kenev said, Can't say I'm encouraged by this place. Kalam grunted, appreciating the gradual emergence of Kenev's sense of humor. He said, Could do with a good sweeping. Kenev said, I, mind you, I've seen bonfires get out of control before. Minala took a last sip of water set the bladder down and announced, I'm done. You two can discuss the weather in peace. They watched her stride to her bedroll. Selv repacked the remaining food, then led her children away as well. Kalam told Keneb, it's my watch. Keneb said, I'm not tired. Kalam barked a laugh. Keneb admitted, all right, I'm tired. We all are. Thing is, this dust has us all snoring so loud, we drown out stags in heat. I end up just lying there, staring up at what should be sky, but looks more like a shroud. Throat on fire, lungs aching like they were full of sludge, eyes drier than a forgotten luck stone. We won't get any decent sleep until we've cleared this place out of our bodies. Kalam said, we have to get out of here first. Kenim nodded, then glanced over to where the snores had already begun and lowered his voice. Any predictions on when that will be, Corporal? Kalam said, no. The mention of their lungs being full of sludge reminds me of this terrible movie I saw named Super Volcano. It was about the super caldera in Yellowstone blowing up and the after effects on the U.S. and the rest of the world. 
without some type of breathing filter, the volcanic ash gets in your lungs and can lead to some really bad respiratory conditions. Is this similar to what happened to a lot of the first responders during 9-11? In a way, but the Different materials, stuff. there was a ton of asbestos used in those buildings in, okay. in the, the World Trade Center. This is more of a silica, fine silica particle type situation. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's been a word that's in, been invented for this, though it's not an official medical term. It's been invented for another reason. It is allegedly one of the longest words in the English language. I can't wait to hear you say it. I worked on it. Pneumono ultramicroscopic silico volcano. Oh, I messed it up. Volcanoconiosis. There we go. <laughs> Nicely done, sir. Yeah, I, I worked on that for a minute myself. And so, so has this officially replaced the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Okay, I looked up a list of words <laughs> that are so – what would be more appropriate because people were kind right. of poo-pooing this as a real word. Right. And okay. I excluded supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> because it's not in all dictionaries. It's sure, in some dictionaries. Sure. Okay, Is so – really? <laughs> yes. So if you're including technical terms, the longest English word – and longest word in the world is a chemical name for a protein. The short name is Titan, I think. And it's 189,819 letters long. It takes three hours to say the whole thing. So why in the world <laughs> is there a need for a word that long? I because mean, it's other, a chemical this, name, this, Billy. It's a literal, they're reading okay, the chemical okay, makeup okay, of the protein. Okay. okay. So that excluding sense, I was that. Gonna say, is, I was going to say, is there seriously like, were, did this just edge out something that had 189,818 letters no, in it? Or, uh, <laughs> I'm going to try it again. Pneumono ultramicroscopic silico volcanoconiosis is actually nice. the next in line. Okay. There are some other ones. Pseudo pseudo hypoparathyroidism, and yes, pseudo does, is twice. <laughs> so 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 does the doubling of the pseudo, like the double negative, imply a non pseudoness to it? Like I did not read negative? the definition of the pseudo pseudo hypoparathyroidism. <laughs> All right, another one is anti disestablishmentarianism. Yes. Antidisestablishmentarianism, dude. That's one of my favorite monthly. But that's 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 a black adder. It's, it's like, say say antidisestablishmentarianism three times real quick. I learned to say it pretty quick, as you can say. I can't say it three times in a row, but I love that word. Yeah, that is from England. That yes. that's related oh, yes. to their church, right? The Protestant church, yes, I believe. It's amazing, yeah. an amazing yeah. word. And then honorific abilitudinate atibus. That's my favorite one out of all of them. What is that? What is uh, that? About? I don't know. It's something about honorifics. <laughs> I, I don't remember any of these definitions. All right. I, okay. I'm going to stop it there. Fun. But those were the good ones in the yes. list of longest English words. Okay. I love that antidisestablishmentarianism was in there because that's black adder. That's straight out of black adder in my brain. Okay. The fact that you have that memorized is pretty impressive. He has to try and get the Prince of Wales. He says, I'll be back before you can say antidisestablishmentarianism three times. And Hugh Laurie is the idiot prince. And so he goes away for about 12 hours to go do something. He comes back and he finally is just finishing it when he, by the time he walks back in the room kind of deal. You know? <laughs> he may have been gone. He may have been gone a week. I can't remember how long he was gone, but it was, he's been gone a while. Have you tried it? Is it really hard? I have not really. Antidisestablishmentarianism, antidisestablishmentarianism, antidisestablishmentarianism. Uh, I got it. I lost it on that third one. <laughs> I could slow it up a little bit, but my, my tendency to speed things up always kicks in about the midway through. 
Yeah, your natural cadence is quite quick. Yes. Kenna was silent for a long time, then he sighed. You've somehow crossed blades with Manala. That's an unwelcome tension to our little family, wouldn't you say? Kalam said nothing. After a moment, Kenneb continued. Colonel Trass wanted a quiet, obedient wife. A wife to perch on his arm and make pretty sounds. Kalam said, not very observant, was he? Kenneb said, more like stubborn. Any horse can be broken, was his philosophy. And that's what he set about doing. Kalam asked, was the colonel a subtle man? Kenneb said, not even a clever one. Kalam said, yet Manala is both. What in Hood's name was she thinking? Kenneb's eyes narrowed on Kalam's, as if he'd suddenly grasped something. Then he shrugged and said, she loves her sister. Kalam looked away with a humorless grin. He said, isn't the officer corps a wonderful life? Kenneb said, Tross wasn't long for that backwater garrison post. He used his messengers to weave a broad net. He was maybe a week away from catching a new commission right at the heart of things. Kalam said, Aaron. Kenneb said, aye. Kalam said, you'd get the garrison command then. Kenneb said, and ten more Imperials a month, enough to hire good tutors for Kesson and Vanib, instead of that wine-addled old toad with the fiddling hands attached to the garrison staff. Kalam said, Manala doesn't look broken. Kenneb said, oh, she's broken all right. Forced healing was the colonel's mainstay. It's one thing to beat a person senseless, then have to wait a month or more for her to mend before you can do it again. With a squad healer, with gambling debts at your side, you can break bones before breakfast and have her ready for more to come the next sunrise. Who would have thought you could use Denul healing for punishing someone? It's kind of brilliant in a sick and extremely horrifying way. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine this level of evil? They've spoken in the past about how forced healing doesn't mend the soul. It takes time to catch up to the body. And the beatings are horrific enough of an action, but you add the compounded toll on Manala internally, and it takes us to like a whole new level of depravity. Yeah, and I had forgotten that she'd been so horrifically abused until you read this. It just really crushes you to hear that she'd gone through so much. Yeah, you really don't pick up on any of it at all from her behaviors that we've seen thus far. You just, oh, I she's, just thought, she's, hey, she's really tough. Yeah, she's tough. She's wary. Yeah. <laughs> That's about all that you get from her is her wariness probably. Which you would naturally be in the situation absolutely. that they've been in since they've been absolutely. on the run during this whirlwind. Yeah, absolutely. Kalam said, with you smartly saluting through it all. Keneb winced and glanced away. He said, can't object to what you don't know, Corporal. If I'd had as much as a suspicion. He shook his head and said, closed doors. It was Selv who found out. Through a launderer we shared with the colonel's household. Blood on the sheets and all that. When she told me, I went to call him out to the compound. Kenneb grimaced. The rebellion interrupted me. I walked into an ambush well underway, and then my only concern was in keeping us all alive. Kalam asked, how did the good colonel die? Kenneb said, you've just come to a closed door, corporal. Kalam smiled and said, that's all right. Times like these, I can see through them well enough. Kenneb said, then I needn't say any more. And that kind of gives you a new view on Kenneb, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I remember kind of liking the old boy, but this makes me feel like he's got a fellow Texan here. I don't like seeing, uh, you like, I, I never mind seeing fellows getting what's coming to them for mistreating women, kids, and animals. <laughs> mm. Kalam said, looking at Manala, none of this makes sense. Kenneb said, there's different kinds of strength, I guess, and defenses. She used to be close with Selv with the children. Now she wraps herself around them like armor, just as cold and just as hard. 
What she's having trouble with is you, Kalam. You've wrapped yourself in the same way, but around her and the rest of us. Kalam thought, and she's feeling redundant? Maybe that's how it would look to Keneb. Kalam said, her trouble with me is that she doesn't trust me, Captain. Keneb asked, why in Hood's name not? <laughs> Kalam thought, because I'm holding daggers unseen, and she knows it. He shrugged and said, from what you've told me, I'd expect trust to be something she wouldn't easily grant to anyone, Captain. Kenneth mused on this, then he sighed and rose. He said, well, enough of that. I have a shroud to stare up at and snores to count. Kalam watched Kenneth move away and settle down beside Selv. He drew a deep, slow breath. He thought, I expect your death was a quick one, Colonel Tross. Be fickle, dear Hood, and spit the bastard back out. I'll kill him again. And Queen turn away. I'll not be quick. And I bet Kalam could be just as bad with his knives as Sari was when she used her knives on the loins of those mercenaries. Mm. Those are the same ones that thanked Kalam for putting them out of their misery. Yeah, I agree. You know, in my mind, I have this vision. I have this pegging order of who's awesomest, like by powers and whatnot. I, I imagine Kalam is like a step below Dancer. Not the rope, mind you. But Dancer, before you ascend it. Mm -hmm. now, this, I don't know enough about Dancer, but this is just for my evaluations and my feelings on the matter. So I don't think this is a stretch here to think that this fellow would know how to really, really hurt somebody. <laughs> yeah. What ethnicity is he? Do we ever figure out where he's from? I don't know. Mm. We go to Fiddler, who was on his belly as he wormed his way down the rock-tumbled slope with his cocked crossbow before him. He thought that bastard's servants dissolving in a dozen stomachs by now. Either that or his head's riding a pike minus the ears now dangling from someone's hip. Ikarium's and Mappo's skills had been stretched to the limit with the simple effort of keeping everyone alive. The whirlwind was no longer an empty storm scouring a dead land. Servant's trail had led the group into a more focused mayhem. Another lance flew out from the storm to his left and landed with a clatter ten paces from where Fiddler lay. He thought, your goddess's wrath leaves you as blind as us, fool. They were in hills crawling with Shaikh's desert warriors. There was both coincidence and something else in this fell convergence. He thought, convergence indeed. The followers seek the woman they're sworn to follow. Too bad that the other path happens to be here as well. Distant screams rose above the wind's howl. Fiddler thought, lo, the hills are alive with beasts, foul-tempered ones at that. Three times in the past hour, Ikarium had led them around a soul-taken or a diver's. There was some kind of mutually agreed avoidance going on. Fiddler thought, but Shaikh's fanatics, ah, now they're fair game. Lucky for us. The likelihood that servants still lived seemed very small indeed. Fiddler worried for Absalar as well, and found himself ironically praying that a god's skills would prove equal to the task. Two desert warriors wearing leather armor appeared ahead and below, scampering with panicked haste down toward the base of the gorge. Fiddler hissed a curse. He was the group's flank on this side. If they got past him, he raised his crossbow. Black cloaks swept over the two figures. They shrieked. The cloaks swarmed, crawled. Spiders, big enough to make out each one even at this distance. Fiddler's skin prickled as he thought, You should have brought brooms, friends. <laughs> First of all, nope to the spiders of this size. <laughs> Second, that's the sapper's morbid sense of humor coming through with the comment about the broom. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, man, my one true phobia is spiders, dude. So this is a big whopping nope. <laughs> I can handle spiders. It's yes. just 
when they start getting to a certain size, that's when I'm not really interested in dealing with them. And then to see them at this distance, you have to imagine they're at least two feet wide from leg to leg or more potentially. Yeah. 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 It's like those, it's like the baby versions of those ones from Lord of the Rings that they're like the size of small dogs. I'm like, oh, no, 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 Don't. Which movie was that in? I can't remember if it's the second one or third one. When, when they split from the party and he gets caught up, Frodo and Sam are caught up by the spiders in the cave that Gollum is trying to, that was just the big one. I'm sorry. That was just the one giant spider, not the small ones. Shebulb or something? Yeah, Shebulb. Okay, yeah. But I'm thinking of, sorry, there was a, a, from the King Kong movie by Peter Jackson. Remember where they're in that oh, stuff? Oh, right, the, right, right, right. Yeah. All those nasty insects and the mm-hmm. babies. Oh. Did you ever see the new Kong movie, Kong Skull Island? I did not. You know, I never really had any interest in watching that. But then mm-hmm. Godzilla, King of the Monsters was coming out. It's like, all right, I need to get caught up on Dude. this universe of monsters I, I watched a couple of godzillas but i was always mad that they show it's like you spend like a two and a half hour movie and you see like five minutes of godzilla you're like dude seriously the newer ones are starting to get more of the monsters in them okay the last one godzilla king of the monsters and then the one that came the godzilla versus king kong and then the one that's coming out i think next year or this year now, I think, starting to have more of the monsters in them. Okay. But back to Kong Skull Island, that was actually a really good movie. And was it? Okay. the way they filmed it, you know how sometimes they'll use a lot of shading with the film. So, for example, in The Matrix, it's very green when yes. they're in The Matrix. And then there's some other ones I'm trying to think where it's it's definitely got some type of tinge to it. Oh, yeah. Heat. Heat has is very well known for its cool palette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this one is very orange. Okay. There was a lot of like sunset type scenes or mm-hmm. dusk and it was really good. Okay. But I, I particularly enjoyed the way they filmed it. I thought it looked really okay. good. So better well, than I, I thought it was going to be. Okay, good. Very cool. Fiddler pushed himself up from the crevasse he had wedged himself into, angled right as he scrambled along the slope. He thought, and if I don't get back into Akarium's influence soon, I'll be wishing I had as well. The scream of the desert warriors ceased, either with the distance Fiddler put between him and them or blissful release. He hoped the latter. Directly ahead rose the side of the ridge that had thus far marked Absalar and her father's trail. He clambered his way to the top and almost immediately stumbled onto the spine. He caught sight of the others, no more than ten paces ahead. The three were crouched over a motionless figure. Fiddler went cold as he thought, oh, Hood, make it a stranger. It was. A young man, naked, his skin too pale to make him one of Shaikh's desert tribesmen. His throat had been cut, the wound gaping down to the vertebra's flattened inner side. There was no blood. That's a deep cut. Mm-hmm. Almost took the head off. <laughs> yeah. You go that deep. As Fiddler slowly crouched down, Mappo looked over at Fiddler. He said, a soul taken, we think. Fiddler said, that's Absalar's work. See how the head was pushed forward and down, chin tucked to anchor the blade. I've seen it before. Crocus said, then she's alive. Ikarim rumbled, as I said, as is her father. Fiddler straightened and thought, so far, so good. He said, there's no blood. Any idea how long ago he was killed? Mappo said, no more than an hour. As for the lack of blood, the whirlwind is a thirsty goddess. So the whirlwind will suck the blood from anyone caught inside? That's pretty unsettling that a storm of this size could be capable of that. And uh, maybe yeah. I should rethink my visit to the Holy Desert Raraku. 
Possibly. Uh, <laughs> wait till the whirlwind passes. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe wait for the rebellion to to go down a little yes. bit. Yeah. yeah. But so, but is it just, is it all, do you think it's people and animals that die here, get the blood sucked out of them? Probably, but. I, I could, I could see it. I mean, cause this, go, I, I think I may bring this up later, but that would go back that, 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 that land spirit magic that's i think it's kind of akin to the elder magic in this world where it's fed by blood yeah is that what you would think something like like sacrifice and the life force yeah so anything dies in here you get that blood yes yeah i agree very cool very dark and awful but yeah kind of cool as long as we see it from the as long as you see it from the outside (laughs) kind of makes you think of apocalypto yeah when they're sacrificing all those people man that was a gnarly scene the whole movie was rough that's a yeah that's a I haven't seen it in a long time, but yeah, it's very uncomfortable. It's a very it's brutal. Yeah. It's one of the more brutal movies I've seen for sure. Fiddler nodded and said, I think I'll stick closer from now on, if you don't mind. I don't <laughs> think we'll have any more trouble from Shaikh's warriors. Call it a gut feeling. Mapo nodded and said, For the moment, we ourselves walk the path of hands. Fiddler thought, And why is that? I wonder. The guess would be that Absalar and her father are following the path of hands. That's my thought. Okay. I'm guessing they all are walking it because aren't they trying to figure out, doesn't the path of hands lead to Tremorlore? Or we think it does. Yes. I think that's the assumption right now. Yeah. So they're, they're looking for this path of hands for sure to get, to get there because that's what they want is the Asaph. Right. They resume their journey. Fiddler mused on the half dozen times he'd seen desert warriors in the past 12 hours. Desperate men and women in truth. Raraku was the center of the apocalypse, yet the rebellion was headless and had been for some time. What was going on beyond the holy desert's ring of crags? He thought anarchy, I'd wager. Slaughter and frenzy. Hearts of ice and the mercy of cold steel. Even if the illusion of Shaikh is being maintained, her ranking followers now issuing commands, she's not led her army out to make it the rebellion's lodestone. Doesn't sit well proclaiming an uprising, then not showing up to lead it. And we've seen evidence of this with the roving bands of men thieving and worse. Yeah, I agree. Need somebody to hold them in line. That's right. It just generates anarchy. Absalar would have her hands full should she accept the role. And assassin skills might keep her alive, but they offered nothing of the intangible magnetism necessary to lead armies. Commanding armies was easy enough. The traditional structures ensured that, as the barely competent fists of the Malazan Empire clearly showed. But leading was another thing entirely. Fiddler could think only of a handful of people possessing that magnetic quality. Dasim Ultor. Dasim Ultor. <laughs> Prince Kaz Devor of the Crimson Guard, Caladan Brood, and Dujek Onearm. He thought Tattersail, if she'd had the ambition, likely Shaikh herself, and Whiskey Jack. Fiddlers including Tattersail, Dujek, and Whiskey Jack with some heavy names there. Yeah. Do you blame him? These are probably some of the craftiest humans. Uh, Shaikh, I don't know enough about her, but the other ones, that's some of the craftiest and most awesome humans in, in this series. And we have both multiple times expressed our love for some of our favorite humans in this series. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay. So maybe I was looking at this the wrong way initially. I was thinking these other people are really powerful individuals, but we're talking about the magnetism and that charisma to lead yes i guess i was looking at it as just how powerful they were but it, yeah it goes beyond that yeah because look at dujek alone i mean the empress fears him taking over the empire 
he's got people willing to help him do it, but he's loyal. So yeah, he's got, he's obviously got that kind of stuff going. Tattersall for sure. She was loyal to them. They were loyal to her. But yeah, Shaikh got this, she sets the wild card in this series. I don't think they have really answered much about Shaikh. As alluring as Absalar was, Fiddler had seen nothing of such force of personality. Competence without a doubt. Mm. Quiet confidence as well. But she clearly preferred observing over participating. He thought, at least until the time came to draw the sticker. Assassins don't bother honing their powers to persuade. Why bother? She'll need the right people around her. Fiddler scowled to himself. He'd already taken it as given that she would assume the guise, twined to the central thread of this goddess-woven tapestry. He thought, and here we are, racing through the whirlwind, to arrive in time to witness the prophetic rebirth. Could you imagine if she would take the mantle of Shaikh? <laughs> that would be fearsome indeed. What would she do with it? It's hard, hard to know what she'd do with it. I don't know what she would do with it. Yeah, I don't know because she says she's a kid, but she's but with someone with that a level of ability, and then having another power on top of that, that might be that could be horrific. <laughs> we really haven't learned a lot about her underlying motivations yeah. short of going home. We don't yeah. really know her yet. She doesn't do a lot of talking. She does not. She's talked about and she's talked to. But we don't, mm. yeah, she doesn't initiate a lot of conversation in this book. So without any further information, it's really hard to know what she would do. Yeah, very true. She doesn't seem like the vengeful type. She just no. kills out of need most of the time, self-defense. She seems very calm and cool and collected. She's not just a crazed killer. You know, she's not bloodthirsty. She, uh, she seems to be defending herself always. Right. Or her friends. Eyes narrowed against the blowing grit. Fiddler glanced at Crocus. Even leaning as he did into the wind, he betrayed something fraught and fragile in his posture. Fiddler thought she said nothing to him before leaving. She dismissed him and his concerns as easily as she did the rest of us. Pust offered her father to seal the pact, but sent him out here first. That suggested the old man was a willing player in the scheme, a co-conspirator. If I was that lass, I'd have some hard questions for old Dada. On all sides, the whirlwind seemed to howl with laughter couple of things here first it's asking a lot for a 15 year old to have the charisma and magnetism necessary to incite an army to follow them yeah. even someone like paul atreides who has had years of highly specific training to take on a role like that wasn't ready mm -hmm. at that age no that's tough for anyone at any age to do i'm assuming you know it ain't easy but uh nice nice dude reference there <laughs> <laughs> it's not no longer the first but <laughs> yeah yeah you know, it seems like some measure of experience is required. I don't think people are born natural leaders. You kind of have to see a leadership style that you like or a combination of styles that you make into your own. But you can't just be a kid and then all of a sudden jump into some type of leadership role and get people to follow you, I don't think. You know, like those qualities have to be learned. What do you think? I agree. Because, I mean, if I was born with the skills just if I or if I just awoke, like she did with the skill set of like the master assassin skill set and then some. I mean, you still need, and a lot of it is reflexive for her, but she's, you know, I don't think she, I don't know how much of her thought life is corrupted by his influence, if, if any of it other than just that imprint. So you have to have experience. She needs to know how to lead people. She needs to know how to, you know, it's one thing to kill and do stuff individually, but to be part of anything. And to, if she wanted to take something over, she would have to have a be part of something bigger than herself. And she would need some experience. The second thing I wanted to talk about here is what are your thoughts on Crocus following Absalar like a lost puppy here? 
Fiddler noted she left them all without so much as a goodbye. I feel kind of bad for Crocus because, I mean, this is like he's just obviously smitten, but he feels, you know, he's smitten, but he feels obliged to help her to get home because he keeps saying, I'm trying to get her home, trying to get her home. So I feel kind of bad for him here. And Absalar is rightfully trying to figure, let's just say it, what it is. She's trying to figure out who she is. But I don't think she had an intention of necessarily abandoning them. Maybe she was just trying to follow Servant. Maybe I know that Fiddler and Mappo discussed who Servant was or who they thought he was. But did they share that with her? Is that ever expressed? Or does she have her own suspicions on this? Or I think Puss told her and she left. That's when she left. I think so, yeah. Okay. So she, and, that, and that's understandable too. If he told her that. I understand why she'd leave them there to try and go figure out what's going on. But I don't necessarily see it as her abandoning him. But I, I do feel bad for Crocus because he's obviously just head over for this gal. He's head over heels for the second time in, in as many books. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and he may keep going through this if we keep seeing him. It is hopeless, man. Yeah. He's a kid. <laughs> he's a kid. He's thinking with the wrong brain. Come on, dude. Mm. We are taken to Lostara, Yill, and Pearl. They stood before a vaguely door-shaped bruise that was twice a man's height. Pearl paced before it, muttering to himself, while Lostara Yill watched in a weary patience. Finally, he turned, as if suddenly recalling her presence. He said, Complications, my dear. I am torn. Lostara eyed the portal. She said, Has the assassin left the warren then? This does not look the same as the other one. Pearl wiped ash from his brow, which left a dusky streak. He said, ah, no, this represents a, a detour. I'm the last surviving operative, after all. The Empress so despises idle hands. He gave her a wry smile, then shrugged and said, this is not my only concern, alas. We are being tracked. Lostara felt a chill at those words. She said, we should double back then, prepare an ambush. Pearl grinned and waved an arm. He said, choose us a likely place then, please. <laughs> that smug sarcasm. So, 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 oh, so smug. <laughs> Lostar glanced around and saw horizons in all directions. She asked, what of those raised humps we passed a while back? Pearl said, never mind those. Safe distance the first time and no closer now. Lostara said, then that pit. Pearl said, mechanisms to measure futility. I think not, my dear. For the moment, I fear we must ignore that which stalks us. Lostara asked, what if it's Kalam? Pearl said, it isn't. Thanks to you, we're keeping our eyes on him. Our assassin's mind wanders, and so therefore does his path. An embarrassing lack of discipline for one so weighty. I admit I am disappointed in the man. So this is confirmation that Kalam is having trouble focusing on his main goal. What do you think his issue is? Some of it's going to be that he's being pulled in different directions. He wanted to go kill the Empress. And now he's having to use what was going to be his key to doing that to now all of a sudden take care of a family and help escape the world or help help escape the uprising. Ah, right. So it's either Aaron or Malice City, right? Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to go straight to the throne room with the yes. shaved knuckle, right? Okay. Yes. Okay, I got you. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Pearl swung to face the portal and continued. In any case, we have digressed a rather vast distance here. A small measure of assistance is required. Not lengthy, I assure you. The Empress agrees that Kalam's journey suggests personal risks to her person, and so must take ultimate precedence. Nonetheless, Pearl removed his half-cloak, carefully folding it before setting it down. Across his chest was a belt containing throwing stars. 
A brace of knives jutted pommel forward under his left arm. Pearl went through a ritual of checking every weapon. I'm reminded of Danny Trejo in Desperado with all these knives strapped to his chest here. I have not seen it, dude. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not, I, I, I say this. I was going to quantify this, but it's like, I'm not a huge Rodriguez fan, but I do like some of my favorite movies are Rodriguez's. I love Sin City. <laughs> so you don't like him as a person or no, most no, of his just, movies? Uh, most of his movies just are, they just kind of just don't land well with me. But I, like, I love Sin City, but that's because I love the source material. I'm a huge Frank Miller guy. And I loved Battle Angel, or Alita Battle Angel. And that's also because I love the source. I've, I've had the anime DVD for like 30 years now. Can you pause for just a second? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. The, the Alita Battle Angel, I couldn't remember the name of it one time. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my wife and my kids, and I said, I called it Attila Battle Hun. <laughs> <laughs> like, just that's great, like, dude. <laughs> you know what that's like? That's like Monty Python. They had a tele on those flying circus. It was They were making fun of a television show. It was Attila and the Huns, and it was like his life as a family man in like a 60s sitcom. But like they kill a couple people and knock their heads off and stuff like that. It's just, it's just, it's Monty Python. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Please that? continue. No, but but I love so many of his stuff. But it's about I'm about half and half. I either love him or hate him. But I will give an honorary mention. Have you seen Four Rooms? No, actually, I've never seen that. That's four directors, and you got Rodriguez and Tarantino, and I forget who the other ones are. The other ones aren't as good. The Rodriguez and Tarantino segments are amazing, but the Rodriguez's in particular is like, <laughs> it involves two children, and I'm talking young kids, like 10 and 8, brother and sister, being forced to stay in a hotel room um, while their parents are out partying on New Year's Eve, and there's a smell in the room, and it's a dead prostitute is shoved into the sofa and these kids finding her is one of the funniest things I've ever seen ever in a movie. Oh, <laughs> it's man. still funny. It's dark as I'll get up, but on my word, because the parents are, is, the, the dad is Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm. This <laughs> so, sounds like a precursor to spy kids. Like they probably came up with the be. idea for a spy kids when they were filming this or something. It could very well have been. That's why but yeah, the spy kids stuff never appealed to me. And some of his other stuff did not appeal to me. But I mean, I tried the only, I never saw Desperado, but I saw Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And it's like, I didn't care. I just didn't like it. I did. I, I'm a, I think I'm pretty all alone. Once Upon a Time in Mexico was not as good as Desperado. But when Johnny Depp tased the matador and that bull got him, you have to admit that was absolutely hilarious. It, it, there is. He is a good director, without a doubt. And he's he's one that's really, I would consider him probably the best director to use green screens and make it more believable. Mm. He has, I mean, he I say this, or if if his work was a groundbreaker for a lot of the Marvel stuff, I believe for sure. And I have to like, you know, his studios are here in San Antonio. You know that, right? He films a lot of stuff in Texas. Yeah. Yes. But his production company was involved in film. Wait, was he the director of Predators? produced he produced they filmed i think almost all of that in texas that wouldn't surprise me he's very texas friendly and like i said his his troublemaker studios is somewhere i I live about 50 miles from san antonio his studios are somewhere in san antonio Mm -hmm. i think of all his movies desperado is my favorite of them it's one of his earliest ones yeah from dust till dawn was the first thing i I love that movie it's really good it's one of those half and half movies that's him and because him and tarantino are best buddies i think yeah they're really good friends is the impression i get because, you know, mm-hmm. Tarantino did that kind of guest directing on Sin City 1 mm-hmm. for a segment to oh, tie dude. some stuff together. That, that was the really long car scene where the dead Benicio Del Toro <laughs> was talking to 
was it Clive Owen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it had to be some type of conversation, of course. You know. Well, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Great stuff. I forgot he did that. Yeah. Well, he it was that one. I, I don't know if he did that part of it, or if he did the part that was the Josh Hartnett bit that tied some of the segments together. He was kind of like a part of the storyteller. I know the car scene Tarantino did for sure. That, that was him. Okay. And it yeah. reeks of him. When you say that, I never, I didn't realize that was him. I thought it was just the Josh Hartnett part that was not part of the book. It was kind of a, a movie device to help move the plot along a little bit. It evokes actually... the Esmeralda Villalobos scene. Yes. What does it feel Sorry. like to kill a man? <laughs> Tell me, tell me, you have to say, you have to say, tell me, Butch, but you have to say, tell me, Butch. Senor Butch. Uh, Senor Butch. All right, we need to go. We need to move on. Gracious. We already owe the audience a list of our rankings <laughs> of Tarantino movies. Yeah. We're yeah, we dangerously on the edge of that conversation right here. So we need to yeah. move along. Okay, move along. Right. Move along. All right. Lostara asks, do I wait here? Pearl said, as you like. Well, I cannot guarantee your safety if you accompany me. I am for a skirmish. Lostara asked, the enemy? Pearl said, followers of the whirlwind. Lostara Yil unsheathed her tolwar. Pearl grinned, as if well aware of the effects his words would have. He said, when we appear, it shall be night. Thick mists as well. Our foes are Semk and Tithanzi, and our allies. How would he know this much information? Would he, magics? Like, where's he getting his intel from? that or alchemies okay <laughs> i assume that he is half test andy so maybe his test parent which i'm assuming maybe his mama or something taught him some serious magics because the tester know they know elder they know dark okay but still how is he getting the information he's been with lostara who's communicating with him how maybe in a similar manner that he's able to follow kalam Maybe there's some kind of just magic little button on him or something that he's, he's getting some orders from, or maybe he's got some ways to feel outside of a Warren because he knows how to move in and out of Warrens maybe by himself without a shaved knuckle in the hole. I think he knows how he does. So if he does, maybe there's something to knowing where to look to it's kind of like hyperspace. You don't just punch out anywhere. <laughs> mm. Maybe you got to feel around a little bit and go, okay, this is a safe spot. <laughs> yeah. You got to calculate a route, right? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, that's very unsure. That, you know, the uh, traveling in Warrens. Lostara asked, allies, this is a skirmish already underway? Pearl said, oh, indeed, Wiccans and Marines of the Seventh. Lostara bared her teeth. She said, Coltane. His grin broadening, Pearl drew on a pair of thin leather gloves. He said, ideally, we should remain unseen. Lostara asked, why? Pearl said, if help appears once, the expectation is it will appear again. The risk is dulling Coltane's edge, and by the nameless ones, the Wiccan will need that edge in the weeks to come. Lostara said, I am ready. Pearl drawled, one thing. There's a Semk demon. Stay away from it, for while we know virtually nothing of its powers, what we do know suggests an appalling temper. Ah, so the storylines converge. This is the claw that helped during the raid Duiker was forced to attend. Yeah. How does he do that? How does Mr. Erickson do that? He is so good at tying this stuff together. So intricately beautiful. It's just so amazing. It's nice to see the storylines converge. Yeah. Well, especially with the stars, because I remember that observation from Duiker about somebody catching a star in the forehead, I think, or something like that. Right. And, and then the, the throwing knives as well. Yes. He's like, oh, and I like that we got, because I was like, are we never going to get this answered? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, thank goodness we got that answer. Thank you, sir. <laughs> 
Lestara said, I shall be right behind you. Pearl said, hmm, in that case, once we're through, pull left. I'll go right. Not an auspicious entry, my getting trampled after all. The portal flared. In a blur, Pearl slid forward and vanished. Lestara jabbed her heels into her mount's flanks. The horse bolted through the portal, her hooves thumping hard soil. Fog twisted wildly around her, through a darkness that was alive with screams and detonations. She'd already lost Pearl, but that concern was quickly flung aside as four Tithansi warriors on foot stumbled into view. A sharper had chewed them up, and none was prepared as Lestara charged them, her tulwar flashing. They scattered, but their wounds made them fatally slow. Two fell to her blade with the first pass. She spun her horse to ready a return charge. The other two warriors were nowhere to be seen, the mist closing in like slowly tumbling blankets. A flurry of sound to her left brought her wheeling her horse around, in time to see Pearl sprint into view. He spun in mid-stride and sent a star flashing behind him. The huge bestial man that lumbered into sight had his head rocked back as the iron star embedded itself in his forehead. It barely slowed him. Lostara snarled, quickly dropping the tulwar to swing wildly from the loop around her wrist as she brought her crossbow around. Her shot went low, the quarrel sinking in just below the semk's sternum and above the odd thick leather belts protecting his midriff. It proved far more efficacious than Pearl's star. As the man grunted and buckled, she saw with shock that his mouth and nostrils had been sewn shut. She thought, he draws no breath, here's our demon. The Semk straightened, flinging his arms forward. The power that erupted from them was unseen, but both Pearl and Lostara were thrown, tumbling through the air. The horse screamed in mortal agony amidst a rapid crunching and crackling of bones. Not the horse, man. No, not the horse. <laughs> we like our horses too much in this. <laughs> Hate to see it. Yep. Lostara landed on her right hip, feeling the bone resound within her. Then waves of pain closed Talon's hands around her leg. Her bladder went, flooding her underclothes in a hot bloom. I forgot she got messed up this bad right here. Yeah, me too. Moccasin feet landed beside her. A knife grip was thrust into her hand. Take yourself once I'm done. Here it comes. Teeth clenched, Lostara Yell twisted around. The Semk demon was ten paces away, huge and unstoppable. Pearl crouched between them holding knives that dripped red fire. Lostara knew he considered himself already dead. Knives that dripped red fire? What type of sorcery is this? I have no earthly idea, unless it's something he had already had pre-treated or something with some kind of sorcery. It certainly evokes a cool visual. Yes, it does. I think of the Balrog. It'd be nice to see that on screen. Yeah, yes, it would. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> All of these books is on the screen, absolutely. Yeah. The thing that suddenly closed from the demon's left was a nightmare. Black, three-limbed, a jutting shoulder blade like a cowl behind a long-necked head, a grinning jaw crowded with fangs, and a single, flat, black eye that glistened wetly. Even more terrifying was the humanoid figure that sat behind that shoulder blade, its face a mocking mimicry of the beast it rode. The lips peeled back to reveal dagger-like fangs as long as a toddler's fingers, its lone eye flashing. As readers, we know this is Apt and her adopted son. And I don't remember the boy getting those teeth as part of the transformation. Hood's breath! Agreed. It's toenails, man. That's gnarly. <laughs> it is. Those long teeth, man. Oh, that's nasty. App struck the Semk demon like a runaway armored wagon. 
The single forelimb snapped forward to plunge deep into the demon's belly, then pulled back in an explosion of spurting fluids. Clenched in that forelimb's grip was something that radiated fury in palpable waves. The air went icy. Pearl backed away until his heels struck Lostara. Then he reached down one hand, eyes still on the scene, and gripped her weapon harness. The semp's body seemed to fold in on itself as it staggered back. The apparition reared, still clutching the fleshy, dripping object. Its rider made a grab for it, but the creature hissed, <laughs> twisting to keep it out of his reach. Instead, it flung the object away into the mist. Man, that boy was going for it. <laughs> He's a wild thing, dude. I forgot that he made the grab for it. It's like, oh my gosh. I want it. I want it. Give me it. It's like a chocolate or something. That would be awful if he had that too. Then it'd be really, it'd be really powerful. Oh man, yeah. Oh goodness. But he hasn't been sewn shut. So he wouldn't be yeah. able to uh, deal with that. Um. <laughs> so that makes you wonder, do they sew everything up except for one entry point and then they stick the thing in and then they sew the rest up? Like, how do, how do you? That's that's going to be my guess. And it's very elder feeling for some reason, that blood and bone kind of nastiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, ugh. Mm -hmm. The blood Sealing and guts magic. Like yes, that's nasty. That's yeah. nasty. Mm -hmm. And they're because they mentioned everywhere, and I'm imagining every yes. orifice that we have is sealed shut. The Semk stumbled after it. This is after Apt threw the remnants of the Semk god away. Apt's long head swung to face Lostara and Pearl with that ghastly grin. Pearl whispered, Thank you. A portal blossomed around them. Lostara blinked up at a dull, ash laden sky. There was no sound but their breathing. Safe. A moment later, unconsciousness slipped over her like a shroud. Why would Apt help them in this fight? Shadow Throne wanted her to help out? I don't think that's the cause. I think it's because he, I think Apt is tracking these people because they're tracking Kalam. And she likes Kalam. And so I think she's guarding them. But if they're tracking Kalam and they want to hurt Kalam, it would benefit her for the Semk demon to kill them. It might. I don't know what Apt is playing at. She's Because she's obviously way more intelligent, and she's she's given nothing away. <laughs> so, not that we know. She's Whatever right. she said to Shadow Throne, we don't know what was said there, but so I don't know. I didn't, think, I didn't even think about that, because I was thinking I was thinking about it like this. Like, she was kind of tracking them and not caring that they were tracking Kalam, maybe she's separated from Kalam in a way. But she, but I think Shadow Throne, if you want, well, he's not in the he's not in Shadow. He's in the Imperial Warren. So I don't know if these things have the ability to move only between Shadow and the regular world, or do they have the ability to move through multiple Warrens? She for sure is shadowing them because Shadow Throne told her to go after them because they were trailing right. Kalam, and right. then she must have followed through the same portal that they just went through to come to this fight why she would help i don't why know she would help yeah i don't know either unless she was just unless she just likes a good fight and knew that this would help her in some way down the road yeah or that it would help kalam some way down the road and it, and it doesn't necessarily but, it's, but maybe she just thinks she's being a help i don't know if we ever find out why she helped maybe i don't we'll, think she her yeah. motives are very unknown. ambiguous <laughs> yes at best yes thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> And thus the chapter ends. There's a lot in that chapter. There was a lot in that chapter. And we digressed a lot too. The three parts. There's yeah. quite a bit between those three. It was a long chapter. Yeah. Yeah, it was. For standout moments, 
finding out where the ash in the Imperial Warren originated was something. Oh, yeah, that's it is something. Yeah, it's good information to have. The fact that Icarium had a mechanism there and the yes. abundance of this ash, it had to be a full civilization. Like, it's not yeah. out of the realm of possibility to imagine that something like Darujistan was where they were. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy. If not, if, if not larger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learning Manala's backstory. Horrific, mm, but yes. pretty important to understand where she's coming from as an individual. Yes, because she's not a small player herself. Yeah, it's such a heinous story, and no wonder she's so tough. To be able to survive that yes. and not be mentally not be crippled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Keneb's response to what happened to Manala. Now, this endears Keneb to me. The way he handled it. He yes. took care of business right there. Yeah, I like it. He don't put up with nothing. I like that. He, don't, he, he took care of it. Yeah. <laughs> Finding out that the whirlwind will literally suck the blood from anyone that yeah. dies within it. It was pretty wild. Yeah, and I, like I said earlier, like I mentioned, I found that kind of strange, and it kind of makes you realize that the Elder Warrens are tied to blood like these other land religions are, just like, but, but, or I guess less organized, more atavistic, more closer to the root of things, mm. I guess, you know? Yeah. It's different stuff. I enjoyed finding out that Pearl was the claw that helped with the raid on the Tithanzi mm. war leader, and then subsequently yes. Apt helping them was also really cool. Yeah. And I, I'm like you, I love seeing when these stories meet up and how that really, it's like, thank you for answering that story because it was, you know, almost didn't need to be answered, but I was, I was glad they told us who it was and what happened. That was really cool. Yeah. And on that point, Pearl is saying we don't want them to get used to help yeah but it had the exact opposite effect now they think there's a spy in their midst and yeah. like yeah. who's gonna assassinate yeah. me like, if anything it's gonna stress the hell out of yeah. Colte. Yeah. well that could that could be maybe that's by design i don't know what no what i don't think it was by plan. design like it legitimately okay. wanted to help him right. empress was sending some help and it's like and that backfires <laughs> oh, uh, finally the boy writing apt trying to grab the piece of the semp god oh, that apt had ripped out of it, the war leader that was beautiful That's i mean hilarious, hilarious. mine mine <laughs> yeah Good. all right you got it's any not... uh, final thoughts before we drop off no, here just great episodes really insane action in this episode by the way yeah really funny stuff great job tonight hey yeah good really good job tonight. i really enjoy great great episode yeah thanks all right thanks everybody we'll see you next week see y'all next week we thank you all for joining us today again we really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us and we've had a really great time talking about the topic today if you would like to support our show you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com where you can find our patreon link depending on the platform you're listening from it may also be in the episode description and if you'd like to contact us uh, through email it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com